Well, welcome everyone. Uh, this is Dwight Scott. We're going to have a kind of have an easy, fun podcast this time. Uh, this is meant to replicate a conversation that Joe Zidle and I have about every two weeks where we get together and talk about what we're seeing in the market. So I know Joe has his podcasts, which are, you know, certainly not as good as my podcast, but they're okay. And <laughs> well, you haven't listened to my podcast yet, Dwight. <laughs> I have, I have. That's not true. And so I thought we would put the two together and have a chance to talk about some of the things that we spend time debating when we get together personally. Joe, you want to add anything to that? Well, thanks, Dwight. I appreciate you having me on this podcast. I thought we'd go around the world, kind of take a deep dive on some of the major topics and trends that we're looking at every day. And, uh, you know, more generally, just uh, interested in a conversation and your views on you know, global markets, credit, and just about everything else between where our worlds intersect. Well, just so the listener understands how this whole thing works, just before we went on air, Joe let drop that he was just over at 30 Rock recording. I think that was a way to remind me that I am the amateur here and he's the professional. So if that comes across in our in our discussion, you'll know that. I guess let's start with the broad economy because that's what everything rides on. That's what everybody wants to talk about. You've made a pretty strong and consistent statement that you believe that we still have some room to run in the U.S., do you want to give us a little color on that and then we'll take it from where that leads us? Yeah. And I guess the first thing I'd say is that I do think this economic cycle is going to last longer than people think. Uh, if we go back to the beginning of the year, the consensus was that you know by the end of 2019 or early into 2020, we'd be looking at our first recession you know, here in the United States, the, the end of this you know, decade-long expansion. And, uh, you know, I'm of the view that the cycle has just uh, got a lot longer to go. If you think about what ends an economic cycle, it's never old age. You know, there's usually a catalyst or some type of shock. Sometimes that's excesses, whether it's financial excesses like we saw in the great financial crisis. Sometimes it's excesses in the real economy, you know, where businesses become overconfident and they start expanding for growth that doesn't materialize, and then they have to start laying off people. And there's no evidence of any excesses yet in the financial or real economy. And the second thing that will end a cycle or cause a recession is when the Fed over tightens, when they hike too much. And what the Fed has told us pretty consistently this year is that they're going to be on hold. You know, that's a pretty sharp contrast from last year where the Fed hiked four times and it engaged in the reduction of its balance sheet, right, allowing, say, $50 billion a month or so to roll off, which is probably the equivalent of about one to two more hikes. So in all, that the Fed hiked you know, almost five or six times when you add it all together in 2018. In 2019, they're telling us that in 2019, they'll be on hold for the entire year. So the things that will end a cycle just are not really in place today. So for that reason, I think we go on for, for years. Well, I'll, I'll kind of ask a contrarian question. I had a discussion this morning with a macro hedge fund manager, and he's been very successful. And I think the view that he was espousing is that it's unclear that the Fed's going to step back in anytime soon because it's unclear that we're going to see real inflationary pressure. And therefore, we may not see this cycle turn for a while, and it may just be a slow grind. Is, is the slow grind a likely scenario or not? I think that could be because globally, you know, conditions uh, around the world are weak enough that it's removing a lot of that pressure from the Fed. It's not like the global economy is ripping. Uh, which would naturally lift the U.S. In fact, we're seeing the opposite. In Europe, which is, you know, if you look at the Eurozone, it's 12% of global GDP. They're slowing. Not only is their GDP coming in weaker than people expect, which we just saw with Germany and France and Italy, but their leading indicators continue to deteriorate. So that suggests that, you know, growth will continue to weaken in Europe. 
So it's not as if globally we've got any sort of pressure. So I do think we we kind of grind along. You know, there is a risk out there uh, that I think brings the Fed back into hiking mode. And the risk is there is wage inflation that is brewing in the U.S., I just don't think wage inflation becomes strong enough in 2019 to cause the Fed to begin hiking again. But I do think the Fed will have to resume hiking sometime in 2020 because that wage pressure is is building. We're seeing it, you know, internally with our portfolio companies. The companies that respond to our CEO survey are, are telling us that they're having to raise wages in excess of the numbers that we're seeing from government sources like average hourly earnings. But but from from and I'm speaking my own book. I'm a credit investor. A slow grind, fine for credit. We don't need significant growth. We just need these companies not to have significant disruption in their business. A little bit of inflation is not bad for us. It's not the end of the world. As a matter of fact, I guess where we would start to worry about what you just described is where you saw that wage inflation and you can't push it through to the price of the goods to the consumer, and you therefore see a contraction in margin. And that does have an impact on credit. It certainly has an impact on the equity markets. And, and I think you saw a little bit of concern about that maybe in the fourth quarter. Was mm-hmm. that part of what we saw in the fourth quarter with the equity markets? Look at first quarter estimates, for instance. The street is estimating that first quarter earnings in the United States are going to be down about 2.7% year over year. But if you look at estimates on revenue, what you see is that revenue is remaining pretty consistent. In the fourth quarter, revenue growth was about 7% year over year. So in other words, revenue growth looks like it's pretty steady, but yet earnings are collapsing. I think that's part of the, the issue, that margin compression issue that we could be experiencing. And you know, frankly, it's an earnings headwind that we're going to be running into in 2019 for sure. So summarize, sort of a slow growth staring us in the face, no near-term recession that we're sitting there thinking about today, at least in the U.S. market and, and probably in the European markets, and a dovish Fed and a dovish ECB, um, you know, generally dovish monetary policy. Yep. So all that being said, the fourth quarter happened, and it mm-hmm. was a major, or not a major, sort of major disruption mm-hmm. in the markets. What caused it to correct? What, what, In your mind, why did we go from that panicky period in December to a much more benign, excited uh, period this year? Yeah, it's a really good question. The first thing I do is tip my hat to credit folks because credit folks always get the economy better than equity folks. An equity investor is normally one who is geared toward quarterly profits, whereas credit folks are geared toward you know the adverse credit event. Are you going to get your return of principal? And so what happened in the fourth quarter is equity volatility picked up first, but credit markets remained you know, relatively orderly, at least in the beginning part of that pullback, a lot of the discussions that, you know, I had with you and your team really revolved around the nature of that credit vol and and exactly what was happening in those markets. And what was clear is that credit was really responding to equity. And that's like the tail wagging the dog. So the first thing I'd say is that the message to me was that 2018's pullback was just a, a classic false alarm. But I think as we look at conditions in 2019, you know, we've seen a really sharp reversal in central bank policy, not quite all around the world, but among major central banks. And, and 2018 was a year of pretty significant central bank tightening you know, on a, on a coordinated basis, where 56% of central banks around the world hiked rates in 2018. And you know, that caused the monetary base to contract by about 8% globally. And that type of liquidity, taking that liquidity out of the market, you know, you're essentially taking fuel away from, you know, equity and credit assets. And so I think the big difference in 2019 is this headwind that was central bank tightening has really gone away. And in fact, I think it could become a a tailwind. Three major central banks out there have changed policy, the Fed, the ECB, 
and the People's Bank of China. So to shift gears for a second, how, how do you look at the slowdown in Europe? You know, how is that impacting your markets? What do you do with the prospects of weaker growth and the potential for ECB resuming QE? Well, I want to go back to a couple of things that you said. First of all, I think we still sit here and, and we think about these positive things going on with the economy. We think about a, a more accommodative uh, monetary policy against a lot of disruption and, and noise in the market, these disruptive events. So if you think about the last two big credit corrections in summer of 11 and in late 15, early 16, summer of 11 was, was driven to a large degree by the U.S. downgrade because we couldn't reach an agreement on the debt ceiling, uh, to, to a lesser degree by emerging market concerns. In 15 and 16, there was a lot of concern that, that heaven forbid, China would not grow at 6%, mm-hmm. a greater than 6% per annum, and that commodities would be under pressure. Energy, right? You and, had and energy Brexit, prices. And Brexit. Yeah. And so all those things have all come to be true. Mm-hmm. So the things that caused the market to panic in those periods have, have started to happen. So we spend more time thinking about disruptive events. And, and you said it, credit people are glass half empty. So are economists, I think, by nature. But credit people are glass half empty, and we are glass half empty all the time. In Europe, what that means is we worry, we watch, and Europe is not, as a lender, one market. It's a series of different markets. And and I would say the UK is a place we have to continue to be cautious while we are hopeful that there's a solution. And it seems today there's probably more likely a good solution with Brexit. We're still cautious uh, in the UK, a little more willing to, to step out in the core of Europe. And because of all the uncertainty and growth and because of rates and, and all those things in Europe, the banks are still not as competitive as they are in the U.S. So from our standpoint, all that comes together in a great set of opportunities for us to do mostly direct lending, mm-hmm. some of our MES, a little less distress, but but a lot of the things that we do, we're, we're seeing really good opportunities in the European markets. Yeah. And I think that persistent low growth, not only, you know, in the U.S. and, you know, what you're describing in Europe, I, I think... Um, you know, the ECB is going to really have to put a lot of liquidity in the market in order to stabilize the economy. And a lot of that low growth basically just extends out this cycle. And in June of this year, this will become the longest economic expansion in, in U.S. history. And I think because we we are about to set the record for the longest economic expansion, it just has people maybe with like a leaving people to a heightened sense of awareness that it should end sometime soon. But the reality is it doesn't have to end anytime soon when you've got central bank policy out there that's going to be so accommodative. And I think Europe's growth is such that the ECB will probably have to add liquidity to the market. But but the other side of the equation is I don't think they're going to be able to hike anytime soon. Their fiscal policy is certainly not helping whatsoever. Trade with Brexit and that trade issue, I think that actually ends up being an issue that we're talking about for all of 2019. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to go back for a second, ask you a question on leverage loans. Uh, and that's something that you had uh, mentioned was an area where you guys are, are pretty constructive. When the markets fell in the fourth quarter, I know the leverage loan market absolutely got hit and you started to hear about a lot of concerns over cov like this, whatever that. And it seemed like you know people identified leverage loans as the next you know, pain point or big risk. Uh, but you recently wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times on leveraged loans. And I wonder if you would address that and maybe just help me and help listeners understand you know, whether there is that much risk in the leveraged loan market or, or if it is actually a slightly more defensive place or a place where you are getting more defense and fixed income where you might find more opportunities there. Well, let's take two pieces. There, there was a component of the conversation 
that has something to do with systemic risk? Does the growth in the leveraged loan market create systemic risk? And then there's a second set of questions, which are, are the credits weaker and therefore is it going to create more mm -hmm. losses given default? So on the systemic risk, I don't see that at all. The, mm -hmm. the leveraged loan market in the U.S. is a trillion two, 400-ish billion dollars in Europe. Uh, that, that trillion two, we just had a major correction in, in, in that market. It moved down about five or six points. Mm -hmm. So it cost us $60 billion of lost value in that, in mm -hmm. that correction. Um, during that same period of time, Facebook and Amazon started that period with a trillion four of market cap, just the two of yeah. them. So bigger than the leveraged loan market. They fell to 960 billion. So lost over $400 billion of value. Now that would have been a correction in the leveraged loan market if we had lost $400 billion of value. And they've only gotten, they still are down $200 billion of value. So they're still down today more than the leverage market was down at its low. That is a shocking perspective. It's really amazing. Yeah. And, and nobody talks about yeah. that. Uh, and So it's not a huge market. It's obviously a trillion dollars. It's almost as big as the high yield market, not mm -hmm. quite as big as the high yield market. I don't see systemic risk there. The holders of that paper are mostly C CLOs own half mm -hmm. of the of the leverage loans in the market today. CLOs are long-term, generally 10-year structures that have institutional investors and, and have a structure, a credit structure that makes sense even in market volatility. Mm -hmm. I don't see that structure. Do the loans, have we lost some covenant protection as the market has grown and become more institutionalized? Mm -hmm. We have. We, we don't have maintenance covenants in those structures and really haven't for the last, you know, Should five, that automatically be a red flag for an investor? No, I think you lose maintenance. So, so as soon as the institutional loan market, as soon as the leverage loan market began to institutionalize mm -hmm. and trade and have liquidity, so that when you have a $5 billion outflow like you had in a week mm. late last year, you can actually trade the loans and, and meet that outflow. Once you create that liquidity, it's hard to have maintenance covenants because maintenance covenants assume some relationship between you as the issuer mm -hmm. and me as the lender. If we break that relationship, maintenance covenants can be very dangerous for mm -hmm. the issuer. So that transition makes sense. The rest of the covenant packages, so the uh, restricted payments ability, the ability to do sell leasebacks, those kind of things. We have power sometimes in the market versus the issuer. Mm -hmm. The issuer has power sometimes in the market versus the buyers. And so we, we kind of come and go. So in the summer, the issuer had a lot of power. Mm -hmm. After this correction, we have a little more power. So those kind of things come and go, but that is part of the lending game. You're still in that loan, senior secured, highest part of the capital structure, floating rate, and quite often in a private equity-owned business that there's significant fresh equity underneath you. Mm -hmm. So I still think it's a very defensive place to be. And that's the message in the, in the op-ed was really no structure is perfect, but in, if you want to be a credit investor and you want to be defensive in the market, leveraged loans are a pretty good place to mm -hmm. be. And it's almost ironic that investors are pouring money back into parts or into uh, – bonds or other things that are lower in that capital structure. So they're sort of more junior to a leveraged loan and they're looking at the leveraged loan saying there's more risk there. Yeah. And that's because high yield is, is perceived as a tradable asset. Mm -hmm. And so recovery gear, given default is whoever I sell it to's problem, not mine. And I think that's where leveraged loans are headed. So, Joe, this was great. This was really fun. It's nice to have a chance to chat with you this way and, and I hope we get to do it again. Well, Dwight, thanks very much for having me on the podcast, and I enjoyed it as well, and uh, looking forward to the next time. Thanks.
This podcast nor any of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or instrument in or to participate in any trading strategy with any Blackstone fund or other investment vehicle. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and there is no assurance that any Blackstone fund will achieve its objectives or avoid significant losses. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements. Such statements are subject to various risks and uncertainties. For information about Blackstone's business, including risks and financial information, please refer to our public filings at ir.blackstone.com.